This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and I'm extremely excited today to be speaking with Ken Birch, the outgoing executive director of the Council of Institutional Investors, which is the advocacy group representing U.S. asset owners with a cumulative $4 trillion in assets under management, and it also has associate members with about $40 trillion in assets under management. So huge uh, uh, base of investors and asset owners there. Ken has been executive director at CAI since 2016. He and I have known each other from the days when he was director of governance engagement program at TIA-CREF, though uh, Ken has also been a partner at Cambridge Partners and previously president of the Society of Corporate Secretaries and Governance Professionals. And he was executive director for corporate governance and proxy voting at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, Welcome, Ken, and thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. Okay. So as you know, poison pills, also known as shareholder rights plans, have seen a resurgence this year amidst the coronavirus pandemic. You co-authored Return of the Poison Pill, and a fascinating study on the phenomenon or a report on, on trends in this space. I was wondering if you could just guys tell us a little bit about it. And I guess wondering if you feel like some of these have been instituted because companies are worried about activist funds, or I'm wondering if you think that's more about companies being vulnerable for potential opportunistic acquirers, their depressed share price, particularly in March when the shares were you know, dramatically down, or if it's some sort of combination of both, is acquirer and activist, or one person that embodies both of those. And I'm thinking Carl Icahn, who was, <laughs> a lot of people were right. concerned that he would sweep in and do a proxy fight yeah. and want to acquire some of these oil and gas companies. So um, anyways, yeah, what, you know, what do you think was the motivation for these, this new uh, trend of poison pills. Yeah, so I, I think uh, it's both things. I do think it's more worry about being acquired at a low price. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, as you said, Carl Icahn sort of you know, personifies both both threats from the standpoint of company management, and he was actually uh, one of the one of the uh, specific people that folks were concerned about. I think Co- companies seem to have seen you know very depressed share share values. This started March 10th, so so it started mm-hmm. right in the period where where share prices were really getting hit most. Uh, although actually even earlier in, in oil and gas sector, uh, uh, things had started, started to get rough. So, I, so at least they were framed, or some of these poison pills or shareholder rights plans were framed as uh, trying to de- defend the companies at a point where they were vulnerable because the share price uh, was so low. I'm not personally sure that whole logic makes that much sense uh, in that I don't really think shareholders necessarily are that anxious to sell uh, when they perceive that the share price is sort of temporarily, momentarily depressed. That's a, that's a way for an investor to lose money. And I think investors mostly are in the business of making money. But in right. any case, I, I, I think that was the fear. There was, I mean, I mean uh, there was that, there was that, the Delic, I think was one of these uh, U.S. energy companies that was under right. threat of uh, Carl Icahn. Uh, that, right speculation that Carl Icahn wanted to, to buy it. So there, there was some, uh, uh, some, some of the pills, at least, that I feel like there was some direct activist or unsolicited bitter attention. But I feel your, uh, your point is that the majority of those were just broadly worried that something would happen. Well, so, so I don't know. I, th- I think a number of them did have very specific threats, and probably more of them had specific threats than we were fully aware of. But you know, I think some some of it appeared to be just uh, generalized anxiety about how weak their share prices were. So, mm-hmm. so at the beginning of this year, there were only a handful of companies at stand, standing shareholder rights plans. Mm-hmm. A majority of companies used to way back in in the '90s and early 2000s, but that because shareholders hate poison pills, these that decreased over time. 
possibly doesn't make that much difference because I think a lot of companies, probably near most of them, maybe nearly all, have a have a, a, sh- a pill on the shelf ready to pull mm-hmm. out as soon as they they wanted to. But in any case, I think the panic button was hit mid March, and so a bunch of these were adopted. We we tracked uh, fifty three. Uh, pills adopted between January 1st and the end of May. Wow. Uh, 50 of them since March 10th. So there are only three of them before March 10th. 20 in March, 21 in April, and then okay. nine in, in May. So you could argue that with recovering share values, the the steam went out of it. Um, yeah. Although the truth is that, you know, a lot of companies' share values are, are still actually pretty low. The, the market mm-hmm. overall has has recovered, but it's there's been a lot of dislocation in the market. Yeah, the particular sectors like restaurant industries and uh, and I feel like some of the pills I was just writing this morning about a company that uh, Starboard Value had targeted that it had put in a poison pill. I guess the concern was that the uh, they knew this activist was there and the um, you know they didn't want them to accumulate. Uh, Comvald is the name of the company. Didn't want. Let the activists accumulate more shares than uh, you know to give them too much power in the situation as well. So one of the things I thought was interesting is in your study, uh, you talked about how some of these pills had uh, 10-year durations. And uh, I feel like that's on the way of the dodo, so to speak, uh, at least lately. Now they seem to last one year or shorter. And I feel like there was a few of them you guys talked about that were even shorter than a year. Wondering, uh, you know, what CII or what you think about the, you know, these shorter durations, is that better from a shareholder point of view? And then if you could talk a little bit about the vote, uh, the activists, I can always hear them in my ear going, you know, why can't there be a shoulder vote before they adopt the right. pill? It's always the, they adopt the pill and then there's a shoulder vote afterwards. And, but typically these ones seem to have a vote uh, within a year of the, of the pill uh, being adopted. So ISS seems to be, Institutional Shelter Services, the influential proxy advisor firm, seems to be pretty comfortable with the vote after the pills adopted, but I don't know. What are your thoughts on the short durations and the uh, the votes? Yeah, so um, so so the ten year pill has gone the way of the dodo. I mean, we don't really <laughs> see many. Uh, we do see a few that are multiple years. Um, but what we saw happening this year, um, they were nearly all uh, a year or less. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them, uh, a few of them, would expire in December. A few went over a year, but but it, but that's a minority uh, position. Um, the, the votes. Um, part of the question is, okay, I think it'd be preferable from an investor standpoint to have the vote before the pill was adopted, but that just doesn't happen. And in any case, if it happens fairly quickly, as opposed to a year later, so there are a few pills that go on longer that ha- provide for a vote next spring in 2021. But most of them expire by that time. Hmm. So you know, so the vote in 2021 is sort of Beside the point, Occidental That's Petroleum, which is one of the first out of the gate this 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 time, uh, they did put the the pill to a vote at their at their shareholder meeting in May. And by the way, it won support. It got seventy four percent support. So it's not that's like, interesting. That, I mean, in that case, that was also a Carl Icahn uh, situation right, where right, exactly. he like had a settlement with the board, yeah, and, and there was, was a, a settlement. So that, all stuff, yeah, yeah, and the settlement plays into all that. But you know, I think in the past, shareholders have shown at times they're willing to uh, vote for a pill. So it's not like just because you put it to a shareholder vote, you'll never win. Um, but companies are very reluctant to do that. We've only seen a few of them uh, putting them to a vote. 
Okay. And uh, I wanted to talk about something kind of subtrend we're seeing with these pills, which is this kind of return of the passive investor exemption. Sounds kind of boring, but basically this is a, a lot of these pills have these two thresholds, which are, uh, you know, a potential unsolicited bidder or an activist investor, you know, that would file on a Schedule 13D filing would can buy up to 10% while passive investors, you know, I'm thinking, we're thinking index funds, those kind of things, uh, even active managers can buy up to 20% without triggering the pill. So 10% for activist uh, unsolicited bidder types, 20% for the passive investors. This is something we saw back in 2014 when uh, Third Point targeted Sotheby's and uh, there was a lot of backlash. Those kind of disappeared, but now they came back in a big way. I don't know. What do you think about these these pills? Do the you know some of the institutional investor members of uh, the Council of Institutional Investors, do you guys have some thoughts on, you know, have they expressed some yeah. thoughts on them? Do they support them or what do you think of them? Yeah, so ha- half of this year's pills have passive investor exceptions, so it's a it's a pr- it's a pretty big deal at this point. So in Sotheby's, I think Sotheby's was the one that introduced the idea, or at least it's the one where uh, everybody focused on it. Is yeah, not I, quite controversial. Yeah. It, it, it's on the face of it is discriminatory. So you're discriminating between different types of shareholders, and, and people mm-hmm. don't like that. Uh, a share is a share, and and so there's a a visceral response. I also think there were issues going on at Sotheby's specifically, which of course lost that proxy fight that made a, a particularly unsympathetic uh, company to have introduced this to the market. Mm-hmm. But that said, I don't think it matters that much. So that because the the passive investors have to be 13G filers generally, they're not mm-hmm. they're not going to see control of the company. Mm-hmm. If it is BlackRock or Fidelity, you know, a holder that's not actually going to. Uh, go after after management. They they they're big block of support potentially uh, for mm-hmm. for a dissident. But you know they're not they're they're not going to to do a control fight. So in some ways it doesn't matter that much, and it it's easier from the standpoint of those large asset managers because there are some hoops they have to go through, including just uh, limiting their their shares potentially in some companies that have standard poison pills. It it became an issue some years ago. Right. It was part of what drove Fidelity to really be very militant in opposing poison pills. Because like, this issue uh, is that somehow they, uh, you know, there's a, an active situation or so it's better. They have a pill in place and this big index fund, maybe they're rebalancing their investments. Suddenly right. they're, you know, they're usually one of the largest investors anyways. Suddenly they, they uh, unbeknownst to them, they've kind of breached the pill or they're about to breach right. it. So they have to really think about these pills as they, as they right. allocate their investments. So it, it has this exactly, kind of consequence or yeah, the pill is a doomsday machine. So, right. so that's uh, uh, so you, you got to be careful about that, right? Um, okay, so one uh, structure that raised a lot of concern, and all in the uh, activist advisory space, there was a lot of talk and discussion about, and you guys talked about it in your in your in your report, which is these, you know, in some cases we've seen these extremely low thresholds. So you, your study notes that four companies have adopted five percent pills. So that means they trigger when you cross the five percent threshold. These are examples where it doesn't appear to be that the five percent was designed to protect uh, net operating tax losses, which as you guys also note in your report, you know, these ones are, are, are uh, most investors tolerate. And, you know, there's a bunch of other pills at 5% where it's designed to protect these NOL uh, uh, net operating right. loss uh, taxes. Right. So, but there's, uh, for example, one, which we wrote a lot about the deal was the Williams pill, the large oil and gas company, which stands at 12 months rather common duration. But unlike other pills, uh, you know, where they're like 10%, 15%, 20%, or this 10%, 20% dual 
uh, two-tiered trigger. The Williams pill dropped an unusually low threshold of just 5%, and it had nothing to do with an NOL net operating tax losses there. So that uh, trigger caught the attention of the of ISS, the proxy advisor, which recommended a vote against Williams chairman Stephen Bergstrom in response to the pill. And uh, the pill was not put up for shareholder report vote prior to its adoption. Like you said, you know, these don't get typically get voted on prior to adoption, even though it could have since the meeting was April 28th and the bill was adopted March 20th. And then 34% of shares voted against Bergstrom, which I consider to be a fairly substantial amount. Anyways, that's just a little bit of the background there. What do you think about these 5% pills? Is it an anomaly? Are we going to see more of them? How did this, what do you think about the ISS vote against the, the chairman and how that might impact, you know, future thinking about a 5% threat pill? Yeah, so my, my personal view is that it's uh, 5% is an extraordinary statement of weakness on the part of the company. And of course, they did the 5% and they didn't even make a gesture of saying they were going to persuade shareholders why this was justified. So they did not put it to, to a vote at the, at, at the shareholder meeting. So there's, there's really no pretense, but that this is something they're afraid of shareholders. And it, it just, just seems extraordinarily low. I mean, it, it's a reflection of how weak uh, Williams perceives its position as being and how little confidence uh, they seem to feel that shareholders have, have in, uh, in management and the board. So I, you know, I don't think we'll see that many of these other than in the NOL situation, which as you said, investors tolerate. I would say that I think two of them that were adopted at 5% or 4.9% were at REITs that also had the modified dead hand provision, these dead hand provisions oh, yeah. 20 years ago. Can you explain uh, and, that? Can you just explain uh, the dead hand provision and how, as it pertains to these pills? Because I also thought that, well, I didn't think about them associated with the pills. What was I thinking about? Oh, with the directors, that if the director resigns or dies, they still have a vote or something like that? How does it well, work? Well, yeah. So, the, so this became a big thing in the mid-1990s. A lot of companies, actually, even though by uh, poison pills were invented in the 1980s, uh, by the mm-hmm. late 80s, it was clear that many shareholders didn't like them. And then it just built from there. And by 95, shareholder proposals against poison pills were getting uh, significant majorities of, of votes. At the same time that companies were making them worse and worse, and, and one big move was to adapt dead hand poison pills. These would not permit uh, directors elected uh, in a proxy fight, uh, that is dissident directors, from voting to redeem the pill, or that is to remove the pill. So mm-hmm. in theory, if you had an election and the entire board was replaced, and remember, this mm-hmm. is when all the pills were 10 years long, mm-hmm. in theory, there, there would be no one who, who could remove the poison pill. So it was a very abusive, and Delaware courts took the view that it was an abusive, coercive tactic. So it was banned in Delaware. Uh, there were two decisions in 97 and 98, but it still is allowed in, in a good number of states. The two companies have a, a modified provision and just put it in for 180 days that, it, that should there be new directors, they couldn't do anything. Those, they're <laughs> so both, like only kind of quasi-dead, I guess. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, but still, it seems kind of crazy. They were wondering if they, I wonder, we should check where those are incorporated. Actually, so they, Maryland. Maybe, oh, they are Maryland. Maryland yeah. Maryland, Maryland seems to, uh, yeah, Maryland, uh, I wrote an article about the Maryland REITs, how activists continue to target Maryland REITs, even though the 
the uh, the boards are entrenched. I think was the was the theme for that article. But uh, that's interesting. That's in Maryland where they're trying the 180 day thing. That's interesting. Okay, so I wanted to shift attention. We don't have a lot of time. I wanted to talk a little bit about another subject that is you know of interest, uh, lots of interest to the Council of Institutional Investors and to the deal readers. I did a, a, a feature about this that uh, came out uh, last week, which is this issue of virtual annual meetings amidst the. COVID-19 pandemic. And I've been hearing a lot of consternation about investors and their ability to ask questions at meetings, to participate in these meetings. And the, the Council of Institutional Investors, uh, you guys issued this letter to the SEC's Investor Advisory Committee, raising some, some concerns as well with these virtual meetings. And, uh, you know, I've talked to maybe four or five different investors, sometimes activist hedge funds, sometimes individual investors. And, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've raised concerns like, uh, you know, not able to ask their complete question, um, having difficulty right. registering. So anyways, what have you guys been hearing? So that there have been a lot of problems this spring. So people switch to virtual meetings uh, very quickly um, in most cases because, because of COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. They couldn't have the in-person meetings. That was entirely appropriate. Uh, it was actually the right thing to do. Uh, but it was and it was difficult. So I think there are three different things that have been going on. Uh, basically, uh, one is just because companies were switching so quickly, and the the intermediaries had to respond in such a short period of time. There were a lot of problems that came out of that, which I think people are actually kind of sympathetic to. So, for example, some of the larger some of the large company meetings can can go on for a while if companies are willing to permit it and and have some real discussion, but it was hard to get time slots from Broadridge, which is the overwhelming provider of virtual meetings. And you couldn't get a time slot for more than an hour before mm-hmm. the technicians would be pulled from that meeting to go to another meeting. So your wow. meeting wouldn't work anymore. So, so, and there were a lot of other issues. So that's one thing. Well, well I Second, mean, because it was so short, the time slot that kind of probably had this uh, as unintended consequence of reducing maybe the right. amount of time for questions or, right. or, yeah. or some, you know, talking about proposals, shareholder yeah. proposals and things like yeah, that. Yeah, some companies. At some companies. Now, if you look at mid-size and smaller companies, the meetings don't go. The meetings are like 15 minutes. But this this was an issue at larger companies with, with some issues. Second thing is almost all the virtual meetings conducted before the COVID crisis were done by Broadridge, uh, which would also do other elements of the meeting. And the key component to make it easy, relatively easy for shareholders to get into the meeting, uh, many uh, beneficial holders anyway, was a, a Broadridge control number which has some confidential information, so they, they did not share it with other providers. So this year was so much demand, there were companies that wanted another provider. I think there were companies that could like copy, Computer share did a bunch, a whole right. bunch of uh, virtual meetings. Right, mm-hmm. right. So those, and, and I feel a little bad for computer share because they got a lot of criticism because some of their meetings were particularly hard for shareholders to get into, but it was really because of the bro- this Broadridge issue. Uh, mm-hmm. course, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I have heard a lot of complaints about computer share and having yeah. to like check with brokers and do a lot right. of stuff before you can like ask a question or uh, things like that. So right, honestly, um, it's not really their fault, um, mm-hmm. and there has to be a better way to do this because it can't be the situation that only Broadridge can offer virtual meetings that are going to go smoothly. So, the, uh, and then the third thing is that clearly some companies don't want. <laughs> don't want a lot of questions or don't want transparency on questions. So best practice is really to show all the questions you're getting. The really best practice is answer all the questions. If not at the meeting, then later in an open way, you know, on the website so people can see, uh, but at least show the questions you're getting. And a lot of companies don't do that. They, they, they don't 
don't want to be helpful on that. And then you had AT&T, which wouldn't even let shareholder proponents actually present their proposals right. uh, in person, which arguably is a violation of law. But Right, because so, the, uh, the SEC rules and also the guidance they put out amidst the uh, coronavirus says that you're, you, you know, if you're a proponent of a shareholder proposal, one of these 14A8 non-binding shareholder proposals, you should have the right to present your proposal at, at the meeting, you know, right. virtually, if it's exactly. virtually, then via that way. I think what I heard at ATT is the, uh, the uh, one investor there, John Chavette, and he want, they asked him to pres- present, uh, provide a pre-recorded version of his proposal, and he wanted to present it live. But, you know, I feel like, let's just take a step back here for a second. Yeah. I feel like uh, these virtual meetings, you know, not everybody, there's so many of them are used. We, there's got to be a better way to do it. You know, I was thinking, you know, some have done these video meetings like on, on Zoom where you can see and hear what all the all the people are asking. I was joking with this Facebook person that at Trillium Asset Management that was submitting a, a proposal on separation of the chairman and CEO about how, you know, you can't, this, you know, this is one of the points I think you were raising, which you, as the meeting's going on, you can't see who all the people are asking the questions. And I've seen systems where, you know, you, you see the questions that are being asked in the virtual uh, situation and you can actually, you know, the participants listening can like the questions they like the most and the ones that are liked the most get to the top of the list. And I, I thought that would be funny because Facebook, you know, they kind of invented the liking feature, right? But there's no such, right. at their meeting, there was no such option. You didn't know what the questions were. The general secretary was asking, was, was asking the questions on behalf of the questioners. And I feel like there's, in a lot of these, there's like these um, summarizations of yeah. uh, where they con- consolidated a bunch of questions into one, which, you know, I guess could make sense since they don't have a lot of time to do it particularly right. Facebook where there's, you know, a lot of shareholder proposals, but, well, uh, but I, yeah, I feel like there's uh, you guys mentioned cherry picking, I think is the word used in your, in your report. Yeah. That's, right? yeah, that's why if you could see all the questions, you could sort of see, Oh, this company is avoiding the tough, t- tough questions. I mean, I listened to the bank of America meeting and I think they said they got to all questions. They, they did have one question. It sounded like they intended to actually read all the questions. Mm-hmm. And there was one that I gather was quite long because they mm-hmm. said we're abbreviating it. And I, and I get that. They're trying to get the, the meeting done. But I, I, I think uh, everybody could be more transparent about it. But by the way, I think a number of companies only provided for proponents to record. I think AT&T was just going to read uh, uh, the, the, the three shareholder proponent statements. Okay. Not, not even do that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they, at the very least, the the shareholder should be able to present it in in person. And you know, at a at a physical meeting, you have these lineups that form behind microphones. They have the person's asking the question has a certain tone, and yeah. uh, you could you know, it's a different energy than if it's different the the, 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 uh, the general secretary is is reading a you know a bunch you know in, yeah. a, in a summarized way to make it seem as mundane as, as it would be. Right, so, right. anyways, I I um, would say the pre-recorded thing. I know some shareholder opponents actually like that because they felt a lot of anxiety on the virtual meeting and, and being called upon at a particular point in time when their kid, because they're all working at home, their right. kid may suddenly be making a fuss <laughs> or the dog's barking or whatever. So some people appreciated that. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah, no, I guess maybe that would work. Yeah, there's uh, definitely a lot of uh, things that this uh, virtual meetings have exposed. Okay, last question, and it relates to the virtual meetings, and it's kind of a little bit of a wonky one, but our, re- our listeners, I think, could be interested, which is this idea. You've been a big proponent of these universal proxy cards for many Many years, and uh, you know, it seems like something that the SEC Chairman Jay Clayton appeared amenable to some altered uh, revising proposal, but we haven't seen anything really come out of it lately. But one of the things that people always talk about with these cards, which basically allow 
in, in investors to really pick and choose between dissident director slates and incumbent uh, director slates in a contested election more freely so they could pick exactly what they want if the idea is to try to get the SEC to do this. But uh, companies in some cases have been doing it on their own. But even without them, uh, my understanding was if you went to the physical meeting, which I know most institutional investors who represent the vast majority of votes do not go to these meetings. There's too many of them. They're all over the country. It's hard to do. But if you physically went to the meeting, you would be able to pick and choose right. uh, between the incumbent and distant. But with a virtual meeting, you, the, the investor is not able to go. So that small percentage of investors that are able to, have been able to pick and choose in the proxy fights that have gone to distance, and some have gone to distance, uh, like uh, Tegna and GCP, where Starbucks right. just took over the entire board there. You know, they've not been able to go to those meetings. So I'm just wondering, is there like, is that another unintended consequence of this uh, virtual world? So it is. In the virtual world, it makes even more important that shareholders be able to vote by proxy on a universal proxy where they can pick exactly who they want. Now, at these companies that have virtual meetings, it is a meeting. And actually getting into the meeting as a shareholder uh, typically does involve establishing credentials. It was very hard, I gather, at these companies to work out. But in theory, people could vote at the meeting uh, still, and in theory, I guess, could split their ballots. But I don't think anybody had any confidence that this would work. So at Tegna, for example, I think they did a lot of work to create a workaround, and at GCP, they created a workaround. And at Tegna, at least, I don't really know at GCP. At Tegna, I heard that nobody voted uh, at the meeting, or at least no one voted on a universal ballot. I think nobody voted at the meeting itself. But I think if I'm an institutional holder, and it's very important to register your vote, I don't really have confidence in this, that this is going to work. And of course, when the meeting's happening, it's going to be too late to recover from that. So, so as a preventative matter, you vote in advance, basically. I would definitely the, uh, vote in Using advance. the non-universal proxy card, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that I they, would definitely that do offered. that. Yeah. No, that's right, particularly as an investment manager, because your clients just really hit you if you if you have missed votes. Right, I just I just wouldn't put up with that. Right, better safe than sorry. As this, uh, you know, not sure how it's going to play out at a virtual meeting. Okay, right. so you've been listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast, and we've been talking to Ken Birch, the uh, head of the Council of Institutional Investors. Uh, thank you, uh, Ken, for taking the time to chat with us. Okay, thanks, Ron. I really appreciate it. And before you go, please check out our events page at thedeal.com slash events. We've got a webcast looking at exactly this topic, poison pills, but we're also tagging on CEOs under fire. That's to take place on July 9th. And we have a number of other webcasts planned throughout the week of July 27th, focusing on the middle market, including a middle market activism panel. 